I've got to be honest, I am really jazzed about this Christmas season. Um, Gilbert Crew got back in our house after our little kitchen fire mishap, and, and they've been busily scrubbing every service. I didn't know there were that many services to scrub in a house. Our house has never been cleaner since it was built, okay? So I would love a little Advent fire every year. Um, it would be, it'd be awesome. Love, love Four Oaks at Christmas, the lights, um, the Christmas Eve service. Uh, Melissa, no hairspray this year as we're passing that flame around. Okay, Melissa caught on fire one year. But anyway, parents, it's okay. No, no, we have safety monitors. It's okay. Love our decor back here. And, and, and if you don't like that, you're a traditionalist, bah humbug to you. Okay, I love this because we got a lot of gifted singers, artists, creative people, talented people in these areas, and I am not ashamed to say that I am not one of them, okay? This explains why um, when I was in elementary school in Chattanooga, I was a part of the Chattanooga Boys Choir. I know, shocking, um, it, it is. And, and so every year they would do the, the, the singing Christmas tree at the Tivoli Theater, and my first year there, they asked me to be Joseph, okay? Mainly because I didn't have to do anything, and I didn't have to open my mouth, okay? And, and so I just stood there the whole time looking at the, the plastic baby um, doll in the manger. And of course, the pinnacle of that performance and the pinnacle of every Christmas performance, it seems, is that as Mary and Joseph are gathered around the manger... And the, the angels are there, and of course they bring in the shepherds, of course, cram them all in there at one time. And then what is the, what, what, what is the coup de grace? They bring in the wise men, right? Uh, go, burying their gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they perch the star on top of the, of the, of the set. They play We Three Kings, which, is, which I've always kind of liked, okay? And if you don't remember the first verse, let me just flash it up here for you. We Three Kings of Orient are bearing gifts. It's not travel, which is what I've always said. Traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And so I asked Josh if we could sing that this morning. He selfishly refused, okay? Something about artistic integrity. Um, and then also something about it not being biblical. And so, so, you know, as I studied this, that's always kind of an important criteria. So as I was studying the passage this week, lo and behold, he's right, okay? It's not necessarily three they aren't kings, probably not from the Orient, okay? And this wasn't a star per se. Other than that, this song gets it all right, okay? <laughs> we are going to be talking about the star and the wise men, so you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Since we're talking about stars and galaxies and celestial events, it seems like an appropriate time for me to break out the top 10 spoilers of Force Awakens and relate them to the Christian faith. Should I do that? Oh, uh, I won't even tell you about Luke. And we, okay, well, I won't even go there. Um, good stuff. Actually, part of an Advent series that we are calling Wonder, okay? Seeing the supernatural in Christmas. And you may say, that, that seems like a strange thing, Pastor Paul, to be, to be preaching on. Isn't the whole point of Christmas that things are supernatural? Isn't that the essence of it, that, that God became man? Why, why have we titled a series in this way? You know, we love to, 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 to get after the progressives and the secular elites this time of year who try to deconstruct Christmas and say it's a myth and it's a fable and it's not historical. But, you know, folks, oftentimes we do the same things not by attack but by neglect. 
these stories because they are so familiar, because they're such a part of our cultural landscape and fabric of our society, it is so easy to take them for granted. It is so easy to lose the supernatural. And when that happens, heaven help us, we lose worship. Our hearts are not awakened to the wonder and the joy of God become man, our king, that calls us to worship him. In fact, you may have noticed in all of our songs this morning had something to do with the throne of God or King Jesus or looking to Christ, worshiping him. And that's what we're praying that God does for us this morning, that he will awaken our hearts to wonder and awe as we taste and experience King Jesus anew. So Matthew chapter 2, wonder, wise men, and the worship of a king. Start with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Lord such a familiar passage, such familiar characters, we are in danger of losing the awe and wonder. And when we lose the awe and the wonder, we lose worship. We lose a heart ignited and fueled by a passion for you. And so we're asking today, Lord, that we would walk out of here different, that we would would be reminded anew of who we worship, and the claims that he makes upon our life, joyful claims, joyous claims, claims of peace and righteousness, forgiveness, and love for his people. Lord, we want to be awakened to that. We pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Because I want to propose that despite our best efforts to domesticate this story in this passage, to... To, to sort of um, neuter it, to, to, 
to call it a quaint narrative, um, a story of inspiration, that we have something far different here. What we have, I think, Matthew gives us is a, a clash of worldviews. It is a cosmic collision of two kingdoms. On one hand, you have the kingdom of darkness and of the world personified in this ruler, tyrant, Herod. Then on the other hand, you have this darkness being invaded by the kingdom of light and the gospel, which paradoxically is, is led by a little baby in a manger. And, and Matthew, I think, does this for a reason. See, see, these aren't just stories, okay, to communicate history, although as we see, they very much do that. Matthew is presenting these stories because he's wanting to bring into stark relief the choice that's before each and every one of us. Who are we in this story? How do we locate ourselves in this passage? Um, Which kingdom are we a part of? Which kingdom, okay, more importantly, and most importantly, holds our allegiance and our heart and our affections and our worship? Now, in a, in a room at Christmas time, I mean, of course, every one of us in here probably is going to say, of, of, of course, Pastor Paul, I'm with Jesus. I'm with the Magi. Okay? I, I, I'm with those guys. You know, no one ever signs their Christmas cards. Having a great year over here with Herod in the kingdom of darkness, okay, probably not how you, you pinned yours, okay? Yet, Matthew invites us in to let down our guard, and to call us to realign ourselves with the king and kingdom of the universe. And so here's our plan, very simple. We're going to talk about the who and the what and the how in this passage, and then end by asking each of us who we identify with. Where do we locate ourselves in terms of our heart Allegiance. So let's dive in. Who? There's three sorts of players in this passage, three primary groups of people or people Herod, the Magi, and of course, Jesus. Herod is brilliant, he is quasi religious, he is feared, and he is ruthless. He is the Donald Trump, okay, of antiquity. Now, I saw a great tweet today, I mean, this morning, I think, or last night. And it said this, there's just something for, for everyone in here, okay, I love this, okay, if Donald Trump gets elected president, okay, I'm leaving the country and moving to California, okay, so, so I mean, there's something for every single person in that, in that, okay, I'm not making a political statement here, okay, Herod, king over Judea, the vassal king appointed by the Roman Empire, they called him Herod the Great because he, he might have been terrible, but he was great. He was powerful. He left an indelible impression upon Palestine and the Middle East in that time. He was enormously successful. He was incredibly ambitious. He was religiously influenced. He was, half, he was a half-Jew. He, he helped construct the second temple um, of the Jews okay, to curry favor. In fact, he, he fashioned himself... A, a Jew. You know, it, it, we remember when we built this building, 
there's John Stewart. He built it with his own two hands by himself. Okay, we're wondering, why is it taking so long to get in here? Guys, it took, didn't take long at all, um, 80 years is how long it took for the second temple to be completed, at least Herod's portion of it. It was, it was a marvel um, um, unimagined at that time. You know, it's kind of like Disney World, you know, where they keep adding on all the time. There's always something going on over there. That was the temple. That was Herod. He wanted to leave a legacy. He was greatly admired, but he was greatly feared. He was a ruthless man. Um, He had multiple wives, multiple kids, had three of his sons and one of his wives assassinated because of palace intrigue and his fear that they were going to topple him in his throne. He gets, that means that this is fairly soon before his death, this passage, which means he is hyper in tune, hypersensitized to anybody who would breach his legacy, challenge him in his, in his power. In fact, he had, he had said he was so consumed with what people thought about him. He said that the day I die, I, want, I decree that a member of every Jewish nobleman's household be killed. Because if my house is going to mourn, I want everybody's house to mourn. And they'll always identify this, the the passing of their child with my passing. Not the guy you want to invite to the holiday Christmas party, right? Okay, not, he's not that guy. And so that is, that is Herod, number one. Number two is the wise men, okay? Or magi, literally magi is the, is the term. Who were the magi? We think the best that we can tell, they were probably professional astronomers. Okay? They, were, they, were, they were people who studied the sky. They studied celestial events. They studied them, though, not for scientific sake, but in the service of astrology. So they were always interested in, in interpreting the signs of the heavens, celestial events, whether they're stars or comets or um, conjunctions or supernovas or whatever, and, and interpreting them in some way, applying them to a kingdom or a ruler or a particular people. And, and, and for us, we would say, well, you know, they're pretty primitive. Sounds like they were sort of magicians and sorcerers. And, and, and in some ways, they were from our perspective. But in that day, they were greatly respected. They were philosophers. They were held in high regard. You know, Daniel, okay, who was a Jew and exported and deported to Babylon to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar um, was kind of a magi. He had dreams and he had visions. And of course, what distinguished him is that those were from the Lord. And we, we think probably, and there's, this is not definitive, it's not thus saith the Lord, um, but they were probably from the region of Babylon, and we think that for two reasons, okay? One is that Babylon was like the epicenter of astronomical observation, okay? So, so there's all kinds of records and sources that indicate that was a, 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 a key center for people who stargazed and interpreted and those kind of things. But more importantly, Babylon was a place where there were a lot of Jews. So let's remember, five, 600 years before, as Israel was scattered, okay, the northern kingdom taken captive and conquered by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by Babylon, the Babylonians, they were exported, deported all across the known Middle Eastern Empire, and a lot of them wound up in Babylon, okay, capital of the Persian Empire. And it would have been very feasible then for people like the Magi, because they were so interested in learning and observing and interpreting human events, 
that they would have heard of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. See, the Jews were expectantly waiting that someone would come and save the day. Someone would come and fix this mess and restore them to their homeland, restore them to their their former glory. And the Magi were in tune to this. And in fact, they probably gravitated to prophecies like this one. Listen to Numbers 24, 17. This is Balaam's prophecy, and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now listen, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so as the, as the Magi are expectantly looking at the stars, there was something they saw, and we'll talk about it in a minute, that compelled them, that helped them identify what's going on up there, pretend something down here. We'll talk a little more about that. And then, of course, the third, the third major player in this story is Jesus, okay? The right answer to every question, right? Okay, so the, th- the third answer, the newborn king. Because then here's what's so, so amazing about this. At this point in time, Jesus is a helpless baby. And when I say helpless baby, I'm meaning he's 100% God, he's 100% man, but he is completely dependent upon his mom and his dad and for the care that he receives. And what is so amazing, and I think Matthew really wants to press home this for us, is that this one person, seemingly helpless person, this baby, literally propels kings and kingdoms into action. Okay? It's amazing, so much tumult, okay, conflict and worldview clashing is introduced by the appearance on the scene of this one person. And I think Matthew does this intentionally. Because look, at, look back at the text where he quotes the Magi. When they arrive in Jerusalem, what do they say? We're here to find the newborn king. Why? We want to worship him because he is what? The king of the Jews. And here's something we, we need to understand, for Oaks. This passage makes a claim on us that when it comes to Jesus, neutrality is not an option. Jesus is not simply a religious figure. Jesus is not simply an inspirational religious leader. He's not someone who simply talks a good talk and has some good teachings, but he's one of many assortment of religious paths that you could take. Make no mistake, okay? Jesus comes to earth to be nothing else if not worshipped. There's no middle ground with this, by the way. And Matthew puts this text right in front of you, right in front of me, confronts us with it, and once confronted, we are never the same. That is his intention. He does not want to walk for you to walk out of here under the myth of neutrality. You are in one kingdom or the other. You are serving one king or the other. You are either, and it, and it sounds primitive, and, but it's, it's so true, you're either walking in the kingdom of darkness, following the path of, 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 of Herod and worldliness and living for self and calling your own shots, or 
you're in the, you're, you're in the line of King Jesus. And you're following behind him, yes, imperfectly, yes, struggling, but you know he is my Lord and Savior. That's, that's what Matthew wants us to be confronted with. So, so that's the who. Let's look back at the what. So what in the world is going on in this text? Okay, apparently the Magi see the star, they set out. If they're from Babylon, which we think they probably are, 550 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, which makes it a a month or two journey if they're making the caravan on camels. And so they, it's probably then, it's hard to say, one to two to three months after Jesus' birth that they arrive in, in Bethlehem, which means they come to a home and not the manger. So, so, so last night, the Gilbert entourage went and looked at Christmas lights in this neighborhood off Red George Road. Anybody made this journey yet? Okay. Um, it was like watching an episode of the great Christmas light fight on ABC. Okay. And, you know, Americans, we just do these things so bizarrely, don't we? This strange intermingling of, like, the nativity scene and then Santa in an airplane in the same front yard. Okay, classic, classic Americana. In nativity scene after nativity scene, there we were. Wise, you know, shepherds, angels, and the wise men, okay? But not so, okay? But not so. Um, This is probably happening two or three months after the birth of Jesus. They are most likely, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, in the town of Bethlehem, upgraded from the stable, okay, staying in a house while they recover before and before Eventually, they'd make their way back to Nazareth. Um, but, but most likely, that's sort of the scenario. So the Magi come on the scene 60, 90 days later, later. It says they first come to Jerusalem, though, and Herod conferred with the Jewish scholars. Because you had this group saying, hey, we are here to, to find this king. And they assumed Herod would be joyful. And they assumed the people of Jerusalem would be joyful but as they found, they were not. In fact, it says, Herod was troubled. He despaired. He was up at night pacing the floor. And he tells them to go find the baby because he doesn't want to worship. What does he want to do? He wants to assassinate. We know that he was so intent on this that Herod, he was so jealous of his legacy and his hold on power. He spent his whole kingdom reign fighting people, trying to keep control to to be the ruler of of Judea. And we know that he was so intent on this, he had a plan A and a plan B. The plan A is, wise men, go to Bethlehem, find him, tell me, I'm sending my guys and we're going to take him out. Plan B... Okay, that was plan A. Plan B was, as we, if you keep reading in Matthew, the, the, the Magi were warned in a dream. They, they got out of there. Herod realized he had been duped. And what does he do? He said he kills every child under the age of two boys in the area of Bethlehem. Which sounds kind of like overkill, doesn't it? You know, I told you guys a week or two ago that, that Jack... Um, had to be hospitalized for a night for strep throat, okay, which seems a little bit of overkill, right? They juiced him up. They gave him one of those big, long shots 
full of penicillin. Tom Thacker, my dentist, tried to do that in my mouth one time, and I said, no, no, absolutely not, okay? Because they wanted to be double sure, okay? Herod wanted to be double sure. He wanted to leave no doubt. And you know, here's a lesson for us, four oaks. Herod would have self-identified as a Jew. Think about this. He had a knowledge of the scriptures. It tells us in this passage that he called all the greatest Jewish scribes and scholars who pointed out texts for him that we read a second ago like Micah 5.2. Let me read it again. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people. That's from our text. Herod had access to the greatest teaching, the greatest scholars, all the truth of the Old Testament. Guys, he lived in Zion. He resided near Jerusalem, the epicenter of the Jewish faith. But here is a lesson, and this is oh so important. He used his knowledge of God to set himself up against God in order to maintain his control. We have to remember, his, just as his knowledge of God did him no good, our knowledge of God that doesn't, uh, that doesn't impact and change the affections of our heart will do you no good either. James has a word for that. He said, That's, that faith is dead. Demons have that sort of faith. Herod had that sort of faith. He knew it all, but it did him no good. Folks, pray. Pray that your knowledge, hey, we are a well-educated, very literate, biblically, church family as a whole. Pray that it would not terminate in knowledge alone, because that won't do us any good. Pray that it terminates in worship, that your heart and my heart might be captured towards the king of the universe. Last point. How does, how does all this happen? By what means, okay, and I want to talk about the star here for just a minute, and, and I'm going to explain why this is important to us, because it says in the text, they saw this star rising in the east, probably in the morning, and as the earth rotated, it shifted to the west, and they followed it west, okay, due west, 500-something miles to Jerusalem, and then it says, interestingly, in the text, the star led them, that's the language Matthew uses, to Bethlehem. But this is five or six miles south. So they're going west and then south. And it says this star led them directly to the house where Jesus was. Now, let me say, there has been no little discussion over the ages, about what this was, or if it was at all. I mean, you hear people say, no one else could see the star but these guys. In fact, it was, it was an angel, kind of like the presence of God leading them. Um, other people have said, this is, a, this is a celestial event, like a conjunction um, of planets and those sort of things. But before we kind of unpack that, let me tell you why this is important. Okay, Why... This deserves some attention from you and some attention from me to best understand what Matthew is communicating. Because in our doctrinal statement as a church, 
we affirm that the Bible, and I'm going to quote here, is the verbally inspired word of God. And here's quote, utterly authoritative and without error, which means that we believe that the Bible is true 100% in everything it says, in everything it affirms. Now, sometimes you and I might interpret it wrongly, but the problem is with us, it's not with God's word. This doesn't mean that the Bible speaks to every issue exhaustively, but it does mean that any issue the Bible speaks to, it speaks to truthfully. Okay, so for example, God made the heavens and the earth, okay, from scratch, by the way, okay, doesn't tell us exactly how that happens in terms of scientific processes, so, so comparison. I know a lot of you are getting ready to make holiday dishes from scratch, okay, or you can just warm them up from the frozen section, that's okay too, okay. You need to know that, that every year, most every year, um, Gretchen Fleming makes these chocolate-covered cherry things, okay? And, and the staff engages in its own intrigue, okay? Because what they try to do is deceive me about when the cherries are going to be delivered, okay? Because they know if they come and I'm there, I will stake my claim. And so oftentimes I am like coming in and there's like one half-eaten one, okay, there, okay? It's highly discouraging, okay? It does not make for a happy Christmas season. So I was talking to Gretchen about this. Who, who, who enlisted Kyle, I understand. Is that right, Kyle? You've been, you've been making these issues. I mean, come on. What, what can go into making one of these things, right? Don't you just take a cherry and, like, pour some something on it, like chocolate or something? Is, is that not? No, no, no. Gretchen, like, unpacks the whole process. And, like, after 30 seconds, I'm like, what? I, whatever. Okay, I don't, look, I don't need to know how it's made, okay, to know that you made them, right? Guys, We don't have to know. The Bible doesn't necessarily feel compelled at every single instance to give us a detailed scientific map about how certain things happen, but we know they did. But nonetheless, these are important issues to understand because a lot of us can walk away being embarrassed by stories like this, okay? We can can be a sort of ashamed of them, and we need to say something here. Guys, the Bible is not the enemy of science, and science is not the enemy of the Bible. You know, science is a human endeavor, okay, which means that scientists, can you believe this, can be wrong about certain things, okay, and they correct their hypothesis later as more data emerges. Guys, did you know that theologians can be wrong, okay? Theology is a human endeavor endeavor, okay? Scientists can make mistakes. Theologians can make mistakes. But we believe God's, the world God has made, properly understood, the word that God has given us, properly understood, they are never in conflict, okay? In terms of what they truly affirm. Rightly understood, these things harmonize beautifully. Why do I say all that? Moral of the story Whatever Matthew is trying to communicate here, whatever he is saying happened, guess what? It happened. And it is true. 
it is not a myth, even if we don't know exactly how it happened scientifically. Now, let me say that to say lots of theories about what this could be. Okay? Was, was this, a, was this a, a planet? Was it a conjunction? Was it a, was it a star? You need to know that in the Hebrew and in the way that the word star was used, it could, it could refer to a host of celestial events. Okay? It could mean a number of different things. And, and one of the books I want to commend to you, okay, if you want to really take a deep dive into this, is a book by Colin Nickel called The Great Christ Comet. Okay? This is not hokey National Enquirer stuff. Okay? It's endorsed by all the usual suspects. Crossway publishes this. And there, there's, there's, a, there's a, and you can see the comet there. He theorizes that this is a comet and goes to painstakingly, he, he writes it with a scientist and astronomer, and they painstakingly gel the biblical data with the scientific data to say, oh, yes, yes, yes. It is, it is highly possible, it is very possible for a comet to do exactly Okay, what Matthew says it does in this passage. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's just absurd. Okay? No astronomical entity could actually pinpoint a house. That is foolishness. Okay? Guys, this book talks about how it can happen in terms of perspective and sight when something can make the appearance of being over something else. Is it supernatural? Is it natural? Yes. Okay? It is both of those things. Let me explain like, how this works. So if you go to the Magic Kingdom and you want to see the fireworks show, okay, and you follow the fireworks, where does it take you? Where does it take you? you can, the castle, of course. Okay? The castle. Okay? Here. You just get in front of the castle and you see all the fireworks exploding over the castle. But... And here's just a little Disney secret. Do you know standing in front of the castle is not the best place to watch the fireworks? Okay, where is it? You go behind the castle, a little-known secret, okay? I can give you a bunch of these again if you take me out to lunch, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. And you realize these fireworks aren't exploding over the castle. They're actually way, way behind the castle. And you can get the best view of the fireworks by being on that side, but... If you go to the Magic Kingdom and you follow the fireworks, where are they leading? They're leading to the castle. Okay? They make a very scientifically compelling case that that is exactly what happens here. Say all that to say, you know, take a deep dive into the book if it, if it really interests you. Folks, we have nothing to fear from science because I'm pro-science. Okay? I, have a, I have a graduate degree in a secular field, social sciences. I've got a theology degree. We have nothing to fear. Time, time and understanding is always on our side. Okay? Always on our side. You can have confidence in the book. Okay? Matthew wants you to have confidence in the book. Conclusion. Two application points and we're done. We've looked at the who and the what and the how. Two application points. Here we go. Number one. A sign... A sign, the star is a sign, no matter how beautiful, how awesome, and how glorious, is still just a sign. You know, it's interesting, the wise men followed this glorious celestial event. And make no mistake, 
Herod knew about it. The people in Jerusalem knew about it. Um, Nobody knew what to make of it. But when the wise men got to the house of Jesus in Bethlehem, what did they do? They didn't continue to stand outside and look at the sign. They went into the house because that's where worship happened. See, the, the star was just a sign to point to the true reality and object of their worship. And let's be honest, we know this. We are a culture captivated and enamored with, with signs and glory, right? The glory of sex, the glory of food, the glory of travel, the glory of experience, the glory of connectivity, the glory of money. Fill in the blank for yourself. Nothing wrong with signs. Signs are gifts from God. But signs are never meant to terminate in and of themselves. That's called idolatry. Signs are meant to terminate in worship. Our problem is that we worship so too often the sign and not the reality. For signs are beautiful for what they point us to. Pray this season that God will open your heart beyond the obvious glories and signs around us and deepen your affections for the Savior. Second application point. We're going to close here. Who are you in this story? Have you been thinking about that? Asked that question at the beginning. We're the Magi, of course, right? Aren't you the Magi? Seeking God, worshiping Jesus, you know, weathering any and all dangers and threats from Herod and those aligned against him. Matthew includes this little inclusio, this little little cautionary tale that's going to forecast something that's going to return, be returned to over and over again in his gospel. He tells us that not only was Herod troubled, that we get that, we know why Herod was troubled, but guess what? All Jerusalem was troubled with him. And that, that, that's just, I find that strange initially. Here you have the Jews waiting 400 years for their Messiah. Steeped in a knowledge of his word. Remember, they, they taught Herod about it. Looking to the prophecies, looking to the celestial event. And even when someone came to Jerusalem to tell them, hey, we think the king of the Jews was just been born. We're going there to worship him. All you hear are crickets. Because no one made a move to go. No one made a move to follow There was no celebrations. There were no pilgrimages. It just says they were troubled. We have to ask why. Well, if you think about it, things were pretty okay for the Jewish people at that time. Wasn't perfect. They were certainly had masters above them, but they had their temple, they had their worship, they had their lives. They had their protection. They had their peace. And they knew if Herod got upset, that was going to be trouble for them because it was going to be on. And their lives would never be the same. And so even when the anointed 
word appeared, they weren't interested. Because they had not been craving the salvation to come. There was just too much to lose. So before we run past this story and say, yes, 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 we are the Magi. Luke, Matthew asks you to locate yourself. Which kingdom and king are you craving for this season? Who, is, who or what has captured your awe and your wonder and your worship? Let's remember, folks, as we come to the table this morning, that if we're all honest, we all must confess we have been ensnared in some way in this battle of kingdoms and darkness. And that's why Jesus did not say a baby. That's why Jesus did not immediately establish his throne and his reign. But the baby came and was born in order to die. In order to die for people who struggle, who sin, whose lives are broken. And so when we come to the table this morning, we are proclaiming simultaneously our allegiance to King Jesus. And at the same time, our great sin and struggle in following him. That's why he came, to fix that problem in your heart and in mine.